Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Dr. Latoya Luce Sampson went to medical school when she was 18 years old. She literally gave away her youth to a medical career. Later on experiencing burnout, she reinvented herself through entrepreneurship and a refocus on what really matters to her as a clinician. Here to tell her story is Dr. Latoya Luce Sampson. Latoya, you're very welcome to this call. I'm honoured to have you on the Health Design Podcast. Uh, yet another physician, clinician for me to discuss the whole business of medicine with. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. I want to start our conversation there and talk a little bit about your experience of medical school. And maybe we can share notes here. Because I know that you were born in Trinidad, Tobago, and then went to Washington for your medical training. Like me, you were very young when you went to medical school. You were only 18. Can you talk a little bit about what your thoughts and feelings were at that time? Like you mentioned, I was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago, and our school system is the European-British school system. So in Trinidad, you go through secondary school, as we call it, or high school, and then you go immediately into medical school, and that's the five-year program that you do. So in my mind, it was normal to just go in young and just go through. But I went to school in the States where the norm is to do four years of undergraduate and then go into medical school. So when I found out that Harvard University, which is where I attended, had a combined program, I was like, oh, well, this is a no-brainer. I'm just going to do that because it's closer to what I expected medical school to be like. So I actually feel like I didn't even know any better. I just kind of just went into thinking I would be as close to how it would have been if I had stayed in Trinidad, you know, with one extra year because Trinidad is five, I did six. So I went into thinking, yeah, this, why not? This is what it's supposed to be anyway. Why do these Americans need extra time? (laughs) Um, So that was my mindset when I went into it. You gave up a lot of your youth, a lot of your childhood, let's put it that way, to training and to medicine. I really do believe that everything in my life happens for a reason. And it has led me to be the person that I am and to the place that I am currently. If I were to go back, would I change it? No. Would I advise somebody else to do it? No. (laughs) So that's where the difference comes in, right? I do think there is value in the full undergraduate experience. And I like what you said, that it was your childhood, because, you know, at that age, you think you're grown. You think that you have arrived and that you're an adult but there is still so much growing to do. There's still so much life to live in that time of being an undergraduate and figuring yourself out, enjoying the experience. There were things that I wish I could have done, things I wish I could have studied that, I, like you said, I had to give up. So I don't know that I would really advise anyone else because you have all the time in the world to go through medical school and go through this healthcare system that really is chewing up and spitting out a lot of us anyway. Why not have your life experiences before you embark on this journey? Unlike any other course or any other profession, 
healthcare is interesting, isn't it? Because it is a generally under-resourced service where you're doing an awful lot for people with very few resources. And as a young person who knows no better, we literally threw ourselves into our work right from day one. And you almost took it as that this was your normal. Of course, that led many people into the situation where they were burning out. However, that's defined. Did you witness this or did you experience it yourself? I did. And now looking back on it, I think I burnt out several times over, actually. Medical school itself was not too bad. Uh, That was a result of my medical school. Howard University was a very special place. It is a very special place. I was still able to maintain some semblance of a social life, and I had great support there. But residency was very tough, and it was a challenge going through that program. Not academically, I excelled academically, but just I felt that really my spirit was broken in that training. And I would think, looking back, that was my first burnout, even though I didn't think about it. Nobody was talking about burnout like that at that time. And then from my most current job that I left now about a year ago, that was my big burnout as it's defined currently, where I was just overworked, had so many expectations from the powers that be in this big corporate medical structure. I think just going through it with no break, with no enjoyment of quote-unquote normal life definitely contributed to that. But at every stage, there was some level of toxicity that contributed to where I ended up eventually. So so yeah, it's, it's a tough, <laughs> it's definitely, a, it's been a tough journey, but I'm definitely glad I'm on the other side now. I can remember nights on call when your body screaming at you uh, not to get out of bed at three in the yeah. morning to go and write up the acetaminophen or whatever other thing right. people wanted. And at the same time, recognizing that you needed to be the one to assess that particular patient and make sure that was the appropriate thing to happen. The experience for patients often is the experience of a junior doctor. In other words, mm-hmm. the person they have most contact with throughout mm-hmm their stay in hospital is the junior doctor. It's not the consultant who comes for a ward round once a day or or once a week. It's the junior doctor and that's the experience they take away. Did you, how did you cope with that? How did you cope with the fact that you were the one that was providing the comfort as well as the care? That part of it, I didn't mind because at my core, I really do value that patient interaction and the ability to educate them and speak in a way that they can understand. It was more the volume, (laughs) the volume of work and the hours and the system that was set up because a lot of teaching hospitals, I don't know how it is outside of the US, but a lot of teaching hospitals have this hazing culture where the residents, especially the interns are at the bottom of the totem pole, So they're treated a certain way and they have to toughen up. And not just by nurses and ancillary staff, but by the actual, their colleagues, by the attendings and just this entire system of hardening, (laughs) uh, 
the trainees. So that part, I think, was the hardest for me. The patient care was the, the enjoyable part. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. What do you think they meant by toughen up? Because that somehow is taking away from the very thing that you're providing, which is the space for patients to express concerns. It is the time to talk about things that matter to them. When you're rushed off your feet and you're giving IVs and putting in IV lines and you're taking histories and you're examining patients and there is no time for that, toughening up means basically becoming immune to that experience or removed from that experience. Was that your impression as well? And so many things I feel like in residency I blocked out because of the trauma that I experienced. But as you were speaking, one particular experience came to my mind where I went to see a patient who was a physician as well and wanted to see an attending, somebody who was on her level. She was a consultant and I was the resident. And my attending or consultant refused to come. She just didn't want to. She didn't have a good reason. Maybe part of that toughening up, I just had to deal with it. And I ended up having this very negative interaction. I actually got written up by that patient. And she said that I refused to call my attending when it was the attending who refused to come. It was definitely something that I experienced and that I really had not thought about until now. It's one of, you know, it was a long time ago, but it definitely changed me in certain ways. And then it's this kind of cynicism that you develop as well. And that transfers onto the patient because we are taught to be callous almost. It's difficult to turn a switch. You're being treated this way by your leadership, by your peers, and then you're all of a sudden supposed to be caring and empathetic and all of those things to the patient. It some of it, even if you have the best intentions, it doesn't always work out that way and you are affected by that environment. I want to turn it on its head now and put us in charge of mm-hmm. healthcare, at least for a moment and, and, and for fun, if nothing else. How do you think we could do it differently for the next generation? How do we make sure that our junior doctors do not become hardened to the point mm-hmm. where that experience is repeated for them? I think it's going to be difficult, but not impossible. And I think it is also happening. So the reason I say it will be difficult is because there's still a generation of doctors that are still practicing. They're still training. The people that trained me and had me in those situations, they're still training other doctors. So do I believe that they are ready for change? Probably not. And that's where the the difficulty comes in. But there's hope in that my generation, the, the generation that's coming up, recognizes that this is not a healthy way to be. This is not a good way to train the future of the physician workforce. So I think the changes are there. They are coming, focusing on on the on the training side, wellness and acknowledging that 
You do not need to be abused to be a good doctor. And then on the patient side, really being patient-centered, we are not the the center, the end-all, be-all. We don't know everything. And I really believe that leveraging social media is important. I know it has helped me with how we are perceived in the medical community, hearing patients' stories, respecting them and listening to them, I think has helped me become a better physician. And I think it will help the future generation be better physicians as well. I'd like to turn now to the medical curriculum and what we could do to change that for future generations. I remember being taught the course of the median cutaneous nerve of the Thai and great detail. Never have to use that information, certainly not as a family physician, never having to use that information again, or having to draw out the Krebs cycle and regurgitate that at exams. Now, it was academically interesting and challenging, and you did it and all the rest of it. However, far better to have been taught other things, because for many Mm -hmm. physicians, many medical graduates, medicine will be a career for a while, and then they're going to do other things. I think your case and mine are pretty good examples. We've had to use other skills. How do we make sure that or can we make sure that the medical training is preparing people for life, not just for a career in medicine? Two things. Bringing in, again, going back to the patient-centered care, bringing in patients, like actual people that have had these diseases that we're learning about, have suffered at the hands of malpractice and negligence to educate the upcoming physicians about how they were treated, how things were missed. I think getting that patient perspective instead of just learning about it in theory is helpful. And something that I'm very passionate about is a big focus on entrepreneurship as a way to give some kind of diversity to the career options for upcoming physicians and not so that everybody start a business and leave medicine, because that's what a lot of people hear when they think about physician entrepreneurship. It's really the skills that you need to be an entrepreneur that can help you in every aspect of your career. That's whether you're employed doing regular clinical work or you're doing work outside of medicine in the corporate field, in corporate medicine, or completely outside. They're valuable for your life in general. So I think focusing there is really going to help the next generation. Having said that, most most people want to stay in medicine. We know, for example, that in the NHS in the UK, one in four junior doctors are looking for a way out of the medical Mm -hmm. career. And for many of them, they'll be trapped. They'll be trapped for a number of reasons, financial in terms of their understanding of what other career options are available. I guess what I'm driving at is this whole idea that we need to teach other skills. And you talk about Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, and certainly that's one that resonates for me. How can we build something like entrepreneurship or design or something else into a career that is so jam-packed full of the Krebs cycle? Yeah, the the Krebs cycle is a sticking point for a lot of people. I think it traumatized a lot more people than I realized. (laughs) I think it's so valid for 
every part of of medicine, especially for the people that train and work in the United States, where it's the peak of capitalism, where private equity and corporate medicine is really just kind of the norm. And just being employed is all people think that is an option. And even if you are employed, you can use these skills and still practice medicine, still use the Krebs cycle if you ever have to use it. In terms of negotiating for better pay, in terms of negotiating to get better equipment to take care of your patients, it's not always about money. That's something else that I think people assume when we talk about physician entrepreneurship is that it's greedy physicians trying to make money. But money is just a way for us to make impact. It's just another way for us to serve. And that's why we're in this field is to serve. So I really believe that it's integral for every physician, every trainer to come up knowing about how to manage money, how to negotiate, how to know their own value. That's a big one in themselves and being a physician. All of those things are important to give people options and to help them have a thriving career. I was thinking as you were speaking about the options that I've seen other people take in the course of their careers. And and almost by default, somebody who has a medical degree of a certain seniority in their career is thrust into entrepreneurship almost by default. So, for example, becoming a unit manager, becoming a manager of a, a unit and, a, and potentially a large part of a hospital, it's almost assumed that having a medical degree is qualification enough for you <laughs> to lead a team. And it clearly is not the case. You know that, right. and I know that. We've <laughs> met many very poor leaders who've got medical right. degrees. How do we prepare people for that? And because, because, in fact, having a medical degree is by default a leadership position. I think it all comes back to how we come up as entrepreneurs. We have to learn it just like everyone else. There are lots of books about leadership that I have had to read during my journey to change the definition of leadership. Because like you said, it's assumed that we know how to be leaders as physicians. And I think a lot of physicians think they are leaders, but we find when you get into like the business world, you're really not, or you're not a very good one. So it's their skills, just like anything else that we have to learn and be intentional about learning and the right type of leaders. And one book that I just recently read that I love was The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. That is the type of leader that I want to be. And I feel like it's very in line with how a physician leader would be because at our core, we are healers. We are here to serve. And it's that same kind of message, not the type of leader in this capitalist new capitalism system that we have now. So just like we learned the Krebs cycle, we have to learn about leadership as well. The first five or 10 years where I was a full-time clinician were very, very valuable because they gave me insights into the, the business, if you want to call it that, but also how to respond to patients. 
when things go well, why they go well, when things go badly, why they go badly. Those kind of insights are not available to managers of healthcare organizations. And Mm -hmm. as a consequence, those who come to lead healthcare organizations who have never been in that room just with that patient do not have the necessary skills. Mm-hmm. It's not sufficient to be a manager. You also have to be a clinician. Would you agree with that? Definitely, 100%. I think the biggest problem with a lot of corporate medical structures is that the people at the top have never laid hands or eyes on patients. They're just making these decisions based off of nothing. And the people on the front line, the physicians, even the nurses and everyone else have to just conform within a system that just doesn't make sense for patient care. I'm going to now put you as the dean of the Howard Medical School (laughs) and ask you for your advice to the first year medical students who've come like you did all those years ago to medical school. What would you say to them? How do they survive a career in medicine without burnout? How do they have fulfilling lives? How do they plan ahead? I think realizing their value as individuals first, because you are called to serve does not mean you are called to suffer. You do not need to give all of yourself to medicine to be a good physician, to be a caring physician. And at the same time, you need to give so much more of your compassion, your heart, your kindness, so that you don't end up being a jaded person that treats people a certain way, the way that the hazing culture will force you to treat patients. So on the one hand, make sure you value your life outside of medicine and your agency and knowing that you have value, you are the physician, the entire system falls down without us. And then at the same time, the patient is really the center. Being patient-centered is essential for us to become better as physicians and as the medical community. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. So what you're saying is you're not sent to medical school for punishment. You <laughs> don't become a doctor as punishment. Right. That's a very short way to put it, yes. Now you're a doctor. Uh, let's, let's put you as the dean for the qualifying class of 2023. And now you're launching these young people into the world as doctors. What would you say to them next? What should they, how should they plan their career for the next 10 years? For the next 10 years, know that you have options. Being employed in the traditional way is not your only option. And it's not that I want everyone to leave medicine. We need people in medicine. That is not the message. But knowing your value is just paramount. 
and knowing that your knowledge and your skill set is invaluable and that with that value, you can choose to become employed but not be abused. You can choose to have your own practice and still be successful. You can choose to work in the insurance industry. You can choose to be an expert witness. You can choose so many different things. It's not just this one narrow path of going to work for how many ever hours for this big system that's going to chew you up and spit you out. And you do not have to go down the path of burnout. You have options and it is up to you what you want to to do with it. Latoya, I now want to pivot to your experience and how you have developed your career and what has brought you to the point where you're now at. Do you want to say a little bit about that? I've had a torturous path to where I've been. I think I am very close with the word pivot. That's what I've had to do many times over. So as we mentioned before, I went to medical school at Howard, trained in Philadelphia. And then I came out to Northern California to do my first job. It was a great experience, but the resources were not great because it was a federally funded health center here in the U.S. serving mainly migrant workers. So I moved on to a larger health system, more of what you would think of as corporate medicine that had a lot more resources. It was a very stable job, but it was a place that was chronically understaffed and not well managed, that very top-down leadership where all the decisions are being made by people that are very far away, may or may not be in these medical roles as we discussed. So it was a recipe for burnout. While I was there, I decided to start a business unrelated to medicine because it was something that I was passionate about. And it was through this starting of the business that I learned all of these tools and skills of entrepreneurship. And I really had this mindset shift and I came to know my value as a physician. And I realized that I can do so many other things rather than just being employed and taking the abuse that I was suffering and the burnout. So I actually left my job with no plan. Whereas before I had to find another job, if I was going to leave this job, I just said, no, I'm, going, I'm done. I'm going to leave. I took time off and then I started doing traveling doctor work. So it's called locum tenens here. I'm not sure if another positive world is called the same thing. So I started doing locum tenens work. And through all of this, you know, to promote my first business, which was a directory of Black-owned businesses and Black professionals who catered to the Black community. I had to do social media. I started a YouTube series to interview guests. I kind of rediscovered my love for teaching and for speaking, which during residency, it kind of got beaten out of me because I was so unhappy there. I was like, I never want to be in a teaching institution again. The truth of the matter is I'm a teacher at heart. I always have been. And through the social media and everything, I realized I really like to do this. So while I was doing my locums, I started my social media platform, Dr. Toya OBGYN, where I educate women about their bodies so that they can be empowered to take charge of their own health. And I have loved doing it. It's the part of being in the office that I loved the most was educating my patients 
And I would have them tell me all the time, oh my gosh, nobody ever explained that to me. And it made me feel good, but it also made me feel angry because these were basic concepts that I feel like every physician should have been explaining. But I was happy that I was able to do that and give them that comfort and empowerment of that education. So I started doing that. And through that online presence, finding my love for teaching and all of that, I realized, you know, I really do like being in the office. I just need to be in my own office. I need to be in charge. I need to be the one calling the shots. And then that's when I decided to start my own practice. And the original plan was to have a brick and mortar office, but I couldn't open until 2024 because of family reasons. We're moving to a different state, all of those things. So that's why I call myself the pivot queen. I decided it's 2023. There's technology. I don't have to wait for my brick and mortar. So I decided to start a telehealth practice so I can start serving patients right away and just have such a bigger reach than I would have even with the brick and mortar. So that's where I am right now that I'm going to launch this telehealth practice where I'm going to support women in the areas of gynecology that have kind of been forgotten and that we don't focus on. So postpartum, perimenopause, menopause, sexual health, giving consultations to help women that feel like they have just been left by the wayside of traditional gynecology. I want to fill that gap with my practice. So that's where I am right now. Yeah, you're the pivot queen, you're right, which is is fantastic. And as you say, this was not planned, was it? This was not planned from that 18-year-old who entered Howard Medical School all those years ago. You could never have predicted this. No, I could not have. This was definitely no plan. Perhaps sometimes the best thing is to have no plan. Yes. What has been very clear from the beginning is that there was no plan, but that somehow it does unfold as it should because of the thing that brought you into medicine in the first place, the passion to make a difference and the love of your patients and ultimately the desire to serve. That's the key thing. And somehow it sounds like Howard selected the right students to bring into the course because regardless of what happened in the course of the career, you went on to make a difference in people's lives. I thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was a pleasure. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.